0: Well, we continue this morning with um, what certainly is a first for me. I know that, and I suspect for most of us, this is a first uh, first time to do a worship service like this. Um, and I appreciate you joining us, those of you who are joining us on live, online. And thanks again to you uh, technical folks and musicians. We're grateful uh, for you being here. Um, um, naturally... Uh, the situation going on with the with the virus pandemic around the world certainly is an um, area of concern for all of us. Um, and I just want to be very candid in this moment. I am not a medical professional, certainly not an epidemiologist. Um, so I, I don't have that kind of uh, instruction for you and for your family. This morning, the thing that I can say as... As a friend, as a father, a husband, as a pastor, um, please avail yourself of the facts as this this situation continues to unfold. Things are certainly changing rapidly. Please avail yourself of the facts. Stay as close to the facts as you can Um, and be wise. Um, Take the advice of the Centers for Disease Control with the protocols that are being recommended uh, and and which may be amended or changed or adapted at any time as the situation continues to be fluid. So do the smart thing. Um, It's an area of concern, maybe even alarm for all of us. And yet at the same time as people of faith, we do have an anchor for our souls. Um, And somewhere in that um, is is the posture for us at a time like this as the body of Christ. Amen. Uh, Keep a a pulse on especially those who are hurting and the most vulnerable. Reach out, support, be the hands and feet of Jesus during this time. Let's be the church, right? Um, So with that... What we're going to do this morning is continue with our current study through the gospel of Mark, following along with Jesus and his final uh, week, what we call Holy Week, and what we've done through this season of Lent. And we're continuing on with this. Uh, Each Sunday through the season of Lent, we're taking a, a, a day of Holy Week in sequence. And uh, so today, this is part five, and that brings us to Thursday, right? We began with Palm Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, yes. Part five, we're going to do Thursday. This is, uh, for some, this is known as Maundy Thursday, which is kind of an odd word. Uh, Just as an aside, this is not our focus uh, this morning, but the term itself, Maundy Thursday, comes from the Latin, Maundy, uh, the Latin for command. Command. And this is a reference to, in the Gospel of John, John's account of Thursday of Holy Week, um, has he, John shows us Jesus saying uh, a new commandment. I'm giving you a new commandment. This is the commandment that I give you, and you know what that commandment is, love one another. And so from that uh, scene from the Gospel of John on Thursday of Holy Week, we get Maundy Thursday. So for many people, uh, this day is known as Maundy Thursday. But we don't get that, uh, that moment uh, of Thursday from the Gospel of Mark. Uh, Mark gives us his uh, portrait, his telling of Thursday of Holy Week. And so that's the one we're following. And let me just say this again as another aside, and then we'll get into it. Um, I think for many of us who, uh, who grow up with these stories, and um, when we tend to think about Holy Week, um, my guess is, for many of us, we have what I would characterize as a composite memory. That is, when we think about the events of Holy Week and certainly the events of Good Friday leading up to Easter, um, my guess is that for most of us, when we think about those events, what we're actually doing is we are assembling pieces and parts Um, from the collection of the four accounts that we have of these events, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, And I point that out because what we're doing in this study, as I've said before, is we're trying as best we can to stick with Mark's telling, right? So Mark has his telling of the events of Holy Week. John has his, Matthew has his, Luke has his. And typically, again, it's the same, we do the same thing with Christmas, right? When we think about the Christmas story, when we actually think about that story, we're going to put together Luke's account of, you know, uh, Mary and Joseph riding to Bethlehem on a donkey and the shepherds in the field. And we're going to put that together with Matthew's uh, bit about the, um, the Magi from the East coming. And we're going, to put, we're going to put Christmas together as a composite from a collection of, of stories, Matthew and Luke in that case. Uh, uh, so, so what we're doing in this, I say all that to say, what we're doing here is we're focusing as much as we can on Mark's telling of the story of Holy Week, in this case, Thursday. So here we go. Picking up, Mark chapter 14, beginning with verse 12. On the first day of unleavened bread... When the Passover lamb is sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? Uh, So he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the owner of the house, The teacher asks, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He'll show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. So the disciples set out and went to the city and found everything as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover meal. Okay, so here's, here's kind of Mark's, well, preamble to Thursday, right? There's a lot of action that's going to happen on Thursday. And we're going to do our best to, uh, to cover all of it um, as best we can. So this is Mark's setup. And it feels a little bit like the setup for Palm Sunday, Right. And in in also in the Palm Sunday element, Jesus sends disciples ahead in that case to find a young donkey colt and bring. So but this case, we're preparing for Passover and he sends disciples ahead to make uh, make arrangements ahead of time. I think what is important for us to kind of notice before we go any further um, is that this Passover meal preparation that Jesus is setting, uh, putting together, this is a clandestine operation, right? He's, he's sending these disciples, not with the entire group. We're not going to go as a group and find a place to share this Seder meal together. I'm going to send two of you ahead. You're going to meet this. It's kind of a, a mysterious uh, uh, setup kind of thing that Jesus gave you. You're going to meet a man carrying a jar of water, and it's got that whole kind of kind of clandestine vibe to it. Um, I think that's significant um, because let's just back up and remember that Jesus already knows that Judas plans to betray him. Um, he, and and, and we don't, I don't even think we need to necessarily attribute that to supernatural Holy Spirit kind of knowledge. I mean, I think if, and, and I think we, we've tried to do this, if we can put our feet in Jesus' sandals through the course of this week, um, anybody with, with a, a modicum of awareness you would know that the noose is tightening around you, right? Like everyone in authority is in opposition to your mission, what you're saying and what you're doing. Um, so we could even just say that Jesus, just as a, in terms of natural human awareness, uh, would have this idea that certainly things are, things are closing in around him. Uh, and, and then in addition to that, we have the spiritual element. So Jesus is aware. He's aware of, of Judas' uh, plot. And, and this meal... Is too important for it to be disrupted by Judas's or anyone else's plotting. This is a critical key moment between Jesus and his followers and he does not want it to be interrupted by anyone. And so we have this clandestine preparation so they make their way. Here we go, verse 17. And when, uh, when it was evening, he came with the 12 and when, he had, when they had taken their places and were eating, Jesus said, truly I tell you, One of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and say to him one after another, Surely it's not me, surely not I. He said to him, It's one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the bowl with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that one by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that one not to have been born. Continuing on. While they were eating, he took the loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to him, and said, Take, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and after giving thanks, he gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new. In the kingdom of God. And here we have this moment that has now been, well, not, not, it's not enough to say this moment is memorialized. This moment has been, has been galvanized into both the consciousness and the practice of Christians for the 2,000, 2000 years since this moment, now the world over. We repeat this moment. Uh, week after week, month after month, year after year in our lives, symbolically consuming the body and blood of Christ in the bread and the wine or grape juice, if you're in the Bible Belt. Um, But we have this moment. It is rich with meaning uh, and deeply important. And so what I want to do this morning at this moment is, is just talk about a handful of facets of meaning from this meal. And as best I can, I'm attempting to work from the history, from the moment, from what's going on in this moment with Jesus 2,000 years ago with his followers in Jerusalem, work from that into our lives, right? Because this moment, it's not just something that happened in the past. It's a moment that happens every time. We participate in this sacred symbolic meal. We reenact this moment. This is what we're looking back to. Um, this is why, in some church traditions, this is referred to as the Lord's Supper. When we when we participate in this week after week, month after month, um, some traditions call it the Lord's Supper time. Sometimes we call it Communion. Some traditions call it e- Eucharist. All of that is fitting and right. But the reason for that, the Lord's Supper, is we are repeating this moment. It's it originated by Jesus and. We suspect that in most every way, what Jesus experienced uh, with his followers on this particular evening in Jerusalem, in most every way, it would have been a typical traditional Jewish Seder Passover meal that they would have uh, experienced year after year in their lives as as Jewish uh, people. And yet at two critical points in the traditional Seder meal, Jesus deviates from the typical script with this bit about, this is my body inviting them to eat, and this is my blood, inviting them to drink. Um, And so, before getting into the particulars, just to kind of have this thought hanging in your imagination as we talk, we call this the Last Supper, because it turns out, historically speaking, that's what it was. And yet, as those of us who follow God through Christ this is the first supper. This is the beginning. This is the beginning of the new thing that God has done and is doing in Christ. And so with that, I want to just talk about four facets of meaning that I hope will um, maybe even further enrich your appreciation for this. Um, The first is I want to talk about radical hospitality and scandalous inclusion. Um, What's happening in this moment historically, I think it's important for us to recognize, is that this is, this moment with Jesus and his followers, this really is yet another instance and an example of Jesus' repeated pattern of radical inclusion through Jesus' practice of openness in table fellowship. This is one of the patterns in Jesus' life that actually um, uh, brought the heat uh, upon him. Jesus, as a matter of course, as a matter of habit, he over and over again shared table fellowship with people who were forbidden by the religious establishment, people who were outcasts, people who were rejected uh, by the religious establishment. And yet, uh, over and over again in his own life and his pattern, uh, Jesus shared table fellowship with these people, um, indicating his openness to them. He's expressing and offering dignity to them, acceptance toward them. And this just got all over the religious establishment. Um, not just that it bothered them, but, it, but from their minds, this was a, a, a matter of disqualification, that it disqualified Jesus from being a legitimate rabbi and certainly a prophet. Well, Jesus is actually continuing that pattern right here in this moment in the Last Supper. Think about it Judas is at the table. The betrayer of Christ is at the table. Remember, because we we know how this story is going to play out, but before this evening is done, all of these disciples will abandon Jesus. This is a room filled with unfaithful followers of Christ. So Jesus, even in this moment, is practicing this kind of, while well, I'm calling it radical hospitality, scandalous inclusion, that's an attempt to get at the, the sense in which this rubs wrong our religious proclivities, scandalous hospitality. Um, and remember this, again, because this meal, this is not just a moment that happened. This is a moment that happens as we repeat this symbolic meal, that Jesus has actually Ensconced this core and still to this day very countercultural element of his life and his practice with this meal. He has ensconced all of that into the core of his legacy through this final and now memorialized meal. In other words, in reality, the Last Supper makes permanent the radical hospitality. And the scandalous inclusion of Jesus makes it permanent. Now, I realize that I'm, as I'm saying that, I am interacting with all kinds of history and all kinds of different church traditions, some of whom practice what's called closed communion. And that is, you must be like religiously certified and qualified in order to, to participate. And we don't have time to interact with all of that. But um, that comes from some remarks written by the Apostle Paul, who says that some of you have eaten the meal in an unworthy manner. Um, and I want to suggest, and you already know what I'm going to say about this, but I want to suggest that surely there are better ways to understand what Paul has to say about this moment uh, than to turn it into this practice of an exclusive kind of meal when everything about the life and pattern and habit of Jesus is this inclusive meal, radically so, all right? So, so this is one element from this, from this meal. It is radical hospitality, scandalous inclusion. The second thing I want to say um, is a word about justice, which, which we've talked about repeatedly through, uh, the Holy, the, through Holy Week. Um, this meal actually, when read carefully, this meal points back in Mark's story to what we call the feeding of the 5,000. Actually, Mark is very careful to use four verbs in the story of the Last Supper, which are also used in the account of the feeding of the 5,000. In both cases, he says, Jesus took, blessed, broke, and gave. Took, blessed, broke, and gave. Those four verbs, um, both in English and in Greek, are both fa- are, those four verbs are found in both stories, the feeding of the 5,000 and his story of the Lord's Supper. Now, this is interesting, right? Reflecting back a little bit on the story of the Lord's Supper, um, I mean, of uh, the feeding of the five thousand, um, you know, you think about it, they're out in the countryside. Jesus has been teaching for a long, long time. There's tons and tons of people around, hearing the sermons and so on. Uh, the disciples say, "Send them away. Let them find. Let them get. Let them uh, go and you know, send them away so they can go get something to eat. Surely they have to, they have to be hungry." So the disciples have a solution. To the problem. There's a big crowd of people who are hungry. That's the problem. They have a they have a solution. Send them away and let them find something to eat. Jesus says, we agree on the problem, but we don't agree on the solution. Jesus says, no, you feed them. What? How are we going to feed five thousand people? We got nothing. We're out here just like you are all day long. We got nothing. So, and you know how the story plays out. They they find someone around who's got some loaves and some fish, and it's not nearly enough. Uh, when looked at through normal, natural eyes, and yet Jesus takes it, he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it. It turns out there's enough to feed all 5,000 people and baskets and baskets left over. Everyone was fed. And the same here at the Last Supper. Jesus took bread, He blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it. And everyone was fed. And I think when we pay close attention to both of these stories being in parallel with one another, what we see is this aspect, and again, we've seen it over and over again, even from the time of John the Baptist, right through Jesus' ministry, we see this theme of loving justice, a kind of justice that looks out for everyone, especially the most the neediest among us. So we have this theme of justice. The third element that I would say about this meal. This meal is is the obvious part, and that is that this is a Passover meal. Um, Passover was an annual celebration and reminder for the Jewish people of the events looking way back to the time of Pharaoh and Moses when God had rescued uh, the Jewish people from the tyrant Pharaoh. And starting from that time in their history, each year, they'd observe this Passover meal where they memorialize and celebrate God's great act of deliverance, delivering their people out of slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh and into freedom in their life, their new life together. And through the years, don't you know, that meal carried resonance in whatever time, in whatever place, with regard to whatever tyrant there might have been at that, in any particular time over the Jewish people. This act, this Passover meal is an act of subversiveness um, against the tyrant of the time and of the place. And in this moment, historically, this meal then becomes a subversive act against the then current tyrant over Israel, and that would be Caesar of Rome. And so with this meal, Jesus participating in this meal with his disciples, both then and now from that place to this place, What we remind ourselves, what we see in this moment historically, and even remind ourselves day to day, is that God desires His people to be free of the tyrants and of their tyranny, free of oppression. And I want you to know that your Heavenly Father wants this for you too. He wants you to be free of the tyrants and their tyranny. Sometimes it's the tyrant within, the Pharaoh within, uh, seeking to. Um, oppress, bind us. Sometimes it's the tyrants around us. But your heavenly father wants you to be free and he wants those around you to be free. God is always on the side of the oppressed. He is always opposed to the oppressor of people. And so this act is that. It is, an, it is a subversive act of critique against the tyrants in our lives and in our world. And the last element, um, I would just say it like this. This meal, in summary, it is an enactment um, that speaks of through death into new life. Um, And this is drawn from kind of the overt reality of this moment when Jesus takes bread and he breaks it and says, this is my body. And then he takes this cup and says, this is my blood. Well... When you're talking about body separated from blood, you're you're not just talking about death. You're talking about violent death. Why did Jesus die a violent death? Well, according to Mark, he died a violent death because he lived for justice. And the keepers of the status quo saw Jesus as a threat in his mission to achieve justice. Jesus knew that his body and blood were about to be separated. And he knew that even in the face of that violent opposition, that he would remain steadfast in his justice-bringing, kingdom-bringing mission and mandate, even in the face of that violent opposition. Jesus knows what's ahead. And get this, he says to his disciples, this is my body broken for you. And this cup is my blood of the covenant. Covenant speaks of God's unilateral faithfulness to people. Here's my body broken. Here's my blood poured out, separated from body. And he asks his disciples to eat it, and to drink it. He invites his disciples to consume his broken body, to share in his, think about it like this, if this could be a hyphenated word, body separated from blood. He he invites his followers to consume I'm going to say it a bit more, one layer up in abstraction. He invites his followers to share in his body separated from blood. Jesus is saying, as my followers, I'm inviting you to share in my body separated from blood because of the pursuit of justice. I'm inviting you to consume, to ingest. Body separated from blood because of the pursuit of justice against the tyrants of the world, oppressing people. That's what Jesus is saying that it means to follow Jesus. This is astonishing. In that sense, you remember from Mark's story, if you're reading it, it's a few chapters back. In time, it's a few days back. When they began their final journey to Jerusalem... Jesus looked at his disciples and to the broader crowd and said, if anybody wants to follow me, what did he say? Take up your cross, a brutal Roman execution device. Take up your cross and follow me. In that sense, everybody, Jesus is doing, he's he's essentially saying the same thing by different means with this meal. Share in, consume, ingest my body separated from blood for the sake of justice. The kingdom of God. So there we have three angles to kind of soak in and appreciate this meal. All right, moving on. Verse 26. When they had sung a hymn, the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, you will all become deserters. For it's written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up, I'll I'll go before you to Galilee. And Peter said to him, Even though all become deserters, I will not. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very day, this very night, before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said vehemently, Even though I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all of them said the same. Okay, so we're going to keep going, but once again, we have this theme, and Mark has been careful to point it out at various points along the way. Other gospel writers, too. It sounds a little bit brutal for me to say it this way, but you know what I mean. I'm not saying this to be mean. I'm saying it just to say it. It's this theme of failed discipleship, right? The closest followers of Jesus are blundering, uh, missing it over and over again. So here we're being set up for another, for another instance of that um, here with Peter and what will become his denial. Verse 32, they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, uh, he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I'm deeply grieved even unto death. Remain here and keep awake. And going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Keep awake and pray that you may not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they didn't know what to say to him. He came a third time and said to him, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up and let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. It's a very poignant scene, to think about Jesus praying alone yet accompanied um, by, so at least most closely by Peter, James, and John, who are, you know, more or less in proximity and yet perhaps not fully engaged emotionally in the moment taking their, taking their nap time. But to see Jesus, the distress that Mark portrays here um, is quite a moving scene. And I just want to zoom in on Jesus' prayer as recorded here by Mark, verse 36 of this passage. It says, Abba, Father, for you all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. Um, First of all, note this word that Jesus uses to to address his heavenly Father. He uses the word Abba, an ancient word that linguistic scholars will tell you, um, really is... The kind of language that a very young child in that culture would use to address their dad. Kind of like Dada in English. So it's a, it's a real term of, of intimate affection toward, toward God. Not entirely unusual in that ancient culture. We do have evidence that there were others, uh, other mystics and prophets uh, in the Jewish culture who used that term to, with reference to God. So not entirely unusual and yet rare. Um, and so it speaks to the relationship uh, of, uh, w- of Jesus and his relationship toward the Father using this very, um, this very warm, intimate kind of language toward God in prayer. Um, and then there are these words uh, that have um, gotten a lot of ink over the centuries, certainly. He says, remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. And I just want to just briefly just suggest, what, is, what do we mean what do we, when we're talking about cup? What does this mean, remove this cup from me? And I just want to suggest very simply that here in this context, the word cup is being used as a metaphor for destiny, for fate. Kind of like the psalmist when he said, my cup runneth over, and there, destiny, fate, The psalmist is speaking of a pleasant reality. My cup runs over. God, you have blessed me. You've poured into my life. My cup runs over. So here Jesus uses the word cup in that same sense of destiny or fate or my circumstance or, you know, this this kind of idea. And then there are these words, not what I want, but what you want. And so I just want to ask the question, because I certainly, I know it's hanging in the air for most all of us. Um what is it that God wants? And briefly and directly, let me say, what God wants is what we've seen Jesus enact throughout his ministry up to and including his doings and teachings of Holy Week. God wants a world that is just. He wants a world that is comprised of loving justice. What God wants is peace. What God wants is for the tyrant's to be subverted. What God wants is life and wholeness for all. What God wants is the kingdom of God on earth, as it is in heaven. And the reason I say that is because some people have misunderstood this prayer of Jesus as if as if Jesus is resigning himself to some divinely mandated death wish. And that's not what's going on here at all. Jesus doesn't have a death wish, uh, nor does God the Father. Listen. God never wants anyone to suffer. God's never desired the death of any martyr. He's never desired the killing or the dying of anyone, not ever. What the creator God desires, however, is for his icons, for his image bearers, to bear his image in peaceable, nonviolent resistance against injustice and evil. And that is what Jesus is resigning himself to. Not some kind of death wish. He's saying, he's saying this, 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 this mission that you've given me is clearly leading me to suffering. Clearly leading me into the teeth of the violence of the empire of Rome. I don't want this and yet what I want is what you want. And I realize that my divinely mandated mission toward peaceable justice, the kingdom of God on earth is doubtlessly, inevitably Leading toward suffering. So Jesus is saying, Father, I want to live, but more than that, I want to give myself to your beautiful vision for a world of peace and justice and wholeness and dignity for every human being. If it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but nevertheless, not what I want. I want ultimately what you want. Verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived, and with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, the one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Verse 45, so when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you didn't arrest me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. All of them deserted him and fled. Verse 51, a certain young man was following him wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. All right, so here we have this poignant scene in the Garden of Gethsemane. So, you know, it's like this question, why, what's with the kiss? What's with the, what's with the kiss from Judas? Well, first of all, on, just on a purely practical level, um, you know, it's like when you consider the very public presence of Jesus in Jerusalem in the entire week, beginning with Palm Sunday and then in the temple uh, on Monday, it seems a bit surprising on the one hand uh, that those who came to arrest Jesus would even need a signal from somebody else, like which one is Jesus. It seems surprising that anyone in town wouldn't know uh, who Jesus is. But again, just, just to point out, if you look closely, this gang that came out to arrest Jesus is not actually... Uh, this threefold group of religious aristocrats that Mark continually talks about, chief priests, elders, and scribes that 's not who the gang is. Um, actually, what Mark says is this is, this is a group uh, that sent by the chief priests elders and, and scribes and so um, it, which is interesting in itself, right so think about this, and so now we 're trying to enter back into the historical context, but remember that because the religious aristocrats were collaborators with Rome, right? They kind of they exist in this, um, this uh, they are kind of like this membrane between the Roman Empire and the Jewish people who the Roman Empire occupy and tax to no end in order to fill their coffers. And, and the religious leaders kind of live in this, in this middle stream, right? So they're collaborating with Rome enough to keep their positions, their cushy positions. Uh, and really their role is to kind of keep order and peace among the people as much as they can. So with that, guess what? They get an army. <laughs> the, the religious r- aristocrats, they kind of have their own army. Not Maybe not quite an army, but certainly more than a police force. And so this is a really awkward, I think, an awkward situation. You have these temple leaders who have their own sort of you know, police plus or army minus. Or something right in between there. So that's the group that they send out to Gethsemane uh, to arrest Jesus. They don't know who Jesus is. That's the reason for, for the kiss. But there's more. There's more than that. There's more than just the historical, practical reason for the kiss. Judas signaled which one was Jesus with a kiss. This is, this is profound. I was thinking about this all week long, you know. Uh, and <laughs> I, 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 I kind of pumped myself up in reflection by dialing back to the early 80s. Anybody remember the, the Christian rock band Petra? In one of their early albums, they had that song called "Judas Kiss." <laughs> That's still a great song, man. I still love it. I listened. I cranked it up. Even even driving in this morning, I pulled it up on Spotify and turned up the radio and listened. <laughs> I listened to that song coming in. Um, I still love the song. And and actually, I think I think with in this nineteen eighty two ish eighty three. So we're talking. I don't know however long ago that is. Is that? thirty some odd years, almost forty years. It's <laughs> amazing. Um, I actually think with the lyric of that song, I think they get it right. About the there's there's a there's a there's a tragic poetic irony in the symbolism of being betrayed with a kiss, you know? And I think I think now there are points where the lyric of that song it gets a little little preachy, a little little shamey. But I think for the most part, they get it right in in unpacking that idea that Jesus was betrayed with the kiss. On the one hand, it's a show of affection toward Jesus, right? And on the other hand, at the very same time, it is an act of betrayal against Jesus. So now, when you think of and see Judas' kiss in that light, everybody... This happens all the time, doesn't it? Betrayed with a kiss. It is simultaneously an act of affection toward Jesus and an act of betrayal against him. Well, well then I'm I'm Judas. I have the capacity to simultaneously hold deep affection toward Christ and at at times in the very same moment betray Him. Betray what it means to be a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm Judas. I suspect that we're all Judas and I can see you nodding your online head even as I say those words. And again, I'll say, you know, this is Judas. We're focused on Judas, and this is, I guess in some ways, this is the decisive act of betrayal, but when you, again, I'm going to use kind of a brutal brutal phrase, admittedly, but just to be compact about it, when you, again, take into account Mark's theme of failed discipleship, well, then Judas is merely a particular point along a spectrum of failed discipleship, right? And again, every every one of Jesus' followers before this night is done, every one of his followers will abandon him. So in that sense, right, if you look at a spectrum, wherever Judas' kiss of betrayal is, the other disciples, their abandonment is just somewhere south of that, but still on the spectrum, right, of failed discipleship. So in that sense, we are all Judas. And let me be quick to add here at this point, um, And we'll get a chance to go through this as we move into the events of Easter Sunday. But um, speaking of all the disciples who kind of are on that spectrum of failed discipleship, um, it's also true that they will all be restored to Jesus through his love and forgiveness. That would be except for Judas because of his untimely death. Um, But I think, and I want to suggest to you, that we can be confident that if not for his untimely death, Judas too would have been able to be restored to Jesus. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. So there's Judas and his kiss. Just another quick word before we move on. Um, the mention that someone with Jesus drew a sword uh, and, and cut off someone's ear. Like, so that raises a question like, wait, what? Someone in Jesus' crew is carrying a sword? How how is that possible? Jesus clearly teaches nonviolent resistance. Love your enemies, turn the other cheek, um, all of that. So what's with a sword among the followers of Jesus? So now we're interacting with a big, broad, historical conversation, but I want to take a chance to get my two cents in. Uh, There are some who have taken this moment, this scene... um, as a signal that perhaps Jesus wasn't so absolute in his advocacy of nonviolence. Perhaps there is at least an opening for a, a form of following Jesus that also has a sword, right? Um, well, I want to suggest another reading of this, of this scene. It need not be read that way. Not at all. And again, I'll point back to a theme that we've talked about over and over again. Remember that for Mark and for the other synoptic gospel writers, it is very common for Jesus' followers to fail, to misunderstand, to blunder, to just not get it. And so I would suggest that in this case, it is completely reasonable yet again to see this, one of his followers with a sword hacking off somebody's body part, it's completely reasonable to see this too as yet another instance of blundering, failed discipleship. It happens all the time in Mark's account. It happens all the time even to this very day. Jesus' followers quite often do very un jesus things. Isn't that true, right? So at the very least, I just want to say uh, that for us to interpret the report that there were some among Jesus' followers who were actually carrying swords and weapons of war, it need not suggest that Jesus is backing off uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. It need not suggest that at all. It may merely suggest that just like in in numerous other instances, Jesus had people around him, even those most closest to him, who just didn't get it, couldn't hear him, didn't get what he was saying. And so um, there you have it. And then with that, Uh, With that reading, then, what you come away with is a 100% nonviolent, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, Jesus. Now, I recognize that historically that's difficult for us because of our awkward relationship with violence and warfare. Um, And yet I want to push that because I want it to remain at least awkward. Um, And certainly there are large swaths of followers of Jesus, both now and historically, who remain committed to what we call pacifism. That may not be a good term for it. Uh, Probably nonviolent resistance would be a better term, at least from my comfort level. But but, so there you go. So there's there's that. Okay. Now, uh, moving on, next step in the evening, we have what is sometimes called the Jewish trial. Um, And this is moving deeper into the night on Thursday night. Uh, And this is the first of a sequence of loosely using the term trial, although that term might suggest, uh, well, I think, it almost certainly suggests more formality than, than what actually happened. These are probably more like impromptu hearings or, or some kind of thing. So uh, if we had an outline this week, what I've labeled this, I've labeled this next scene as the interrogation by the temple aristocracy. Um, traditionally, it's called the, the Jewish trial of Jesus. I think that's probably too formal, but here we go. Uh, verse 53, they took Jesus to the high priest And all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes were assembled. Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the guards, warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many gave false testimony against him, and their testimony did not agree which is problematic because under Jewish law and practice you need two or more witnesses uh, to confirm in order to to to, to a, two, or four, two, two or more witnesses to agree in order to confirm uh, a claim. So we can't get folks to agree verse 57. They stood up and gave false testimony against him saying, "We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that's made with hands and in 3 days I'll build another not made with hands." But even on this point. Their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus. So in the absence of harmonious testimony against Jesus, what the high priest needs is a straight up confession, right? So that's what he's going for. Uh, So the high priest stood up and he asked him, have you no answer? Uh, What is it that they testify against you? But he was silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah? The son of the blessed one? Jesus said, I am. You will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And all of them condemned him as deserving of death. Some began to spit on him to blindfold him and to strike him saying, prophesy, the guards also took him over and beat him. So this is the beginning where things really turn toward what we know of as Good Friday. Um, So just a couple of points to zoom in on here. Um, The real turning point in this scene is when the high priest directly asks Jesus, and the question, the wording in the question is important. He says, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? And then Jesus answers with, I am, and then he uh, invokes once again the Son of Man. Um, now, first of all, just to point out, and this is kind of an interesting little conversation among uh, um, in the conversation about translation it 's interesting that in the Greek language uh, the words "I am" could also equally be translated as a question "Am I um, and I just throw that out as a fun little thing to think about because if if here in mark Jesus' answer were to be translated at, with a, as a question "Am I then then that would really nicely harmonize with Matthew and Luke and their account of this moment in which Jesus really does give an imprecise kind of response to this question where the high priest in in Matthew and Luke, uh, they have the same question, are are you the Messiah? And what they have from Jesus is is an imprecise response uh, such as, uh, you have said so. Are you the the Messiah? You have said so. So Jesus gives that kind of coy type answer. But here in Mark, we have I am, could also be read as am I, which would make it accord with Matthew and Luke. But more to the point, um, what I'd like to, to point out is in the high priest's question, he asks Jesus, are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers with either I am or am I, and then he says, you will see the Son of Man come in the clouds, etc." Okay, this has happened a number of times in Mark's account. And I'm thinking of the Peter, the Peter one, where Peter says, you are the Messiah. And Jesus responds to Peter by referring to himself not as Messiah, but as Son of Man. Which raises the question, why is it that Jesus is so warm toward this title, Son of Man. And I don't want to say cold toward Messiah, but, but it, it seems to be that when given the opportunity, Jesus prefers Son of Man. So why is it we have yet another instance of Jesus changing the language concerning himself from Messiah to Son of Man? Why does he keep doing this? Well, I think it's an important question. So I want to take a couple of minutes um, and give a little bit of context. The title Son of Man comes from Daniel chapter 7. And Daniel 7, you can read it later for extra credit in the class, but Daniel chapter 7 records an apocalyptic vision by the prophet Daniel. It's got symbolism and beasts and all kinds of things. Um, and yet we're, it's helpful because in this particular apocalyptic vision, um, Daniel, as it says, he says, in my night visions, uh, he sees these four beasts that rise up from the earth or out of the sea. And they wreak all kinds of hell and havoc on people and, and on the earth. But then later as the vision progresses, Daniel takes counsel and says, you know, what am I looking at? Uh, and the counsel explains to Daniel the vision, which is very helpful for us. So we, we, we get to understand that these four beasts that Daniel sees in his vision, they represent kings that'll rise up from the earth uh, and, and oppress and destroy, deal death in, in the world and in the earth. Okay, so Daniel sees these four beasts that we later learn represent earthly kings who will wreak havoc, uh, deal death, destroy human lives in their ruling. Um, but Daniel sees something more in the vision. He sees the Ancient of Days come and take up his heavenly throne and uh, set up kind of heavenly court, Right? Sees the Ancient of Days. And then Daniel sees one, it says, one like a son of man who comes with the clouds up before the Ancient of Days. And in Daniel's uh, vision, the Ancient of Days gives to the Son of Man, the one who is like a human being. The Ancient of Days gives to the one who is like a human being. It says, uh, rule and authority, and dominion, and kingship, and says that all people, and nations, and languages would serve him, this one who is like a human being. And so from this story in Daniel 7, the title Son of Man is a loaded image in the Jewish consciousness. On the one hand, the Son of Man is granted authority, and dominion, in kingship, yes, that's certainly true. But also remember, and, and this is I'm telling you, this is what this is the reason I think Jesus likes the title Son of Man. Because Daniel's figure of the human one stands in stark contrast to the beasts, the kings of the earth, who rule with destruction and death dealing. See the four beasts in Daniel's vision. There are four kings that rise up from the earth, and they're destructive, and they're tyrannical. The Son of Man, in Daniel's vision, in contrast, is given dominion and kingship from heaven for sure. But his style of dominion is unlike that of the beasts. It's in contrast to the style of dominion practiced by the beasts. And here, I think, is, is where we discover Why Jesus likes this image, Son of Man, so much. We can think of the Son of Man, as Daniel also describes it, as one like a human being. Given the context of the contrasting style of rule between the beast and the Son of Man, you can think of the human one as the humane one. That's the context of Daniel's vision. So where where the Jewish imagination and expectation for Messiah, still for many included this notion of a violent, warring kind of David-like deliverer. Daniel's image of the Son of Man, on the other hand, the human one, is clearly of a different sort than the standard fare of earthly kings. And so, you see this repeated pattern. Are you the Messiah? And Jesus answers by talking about himself in terms of the Son of Man, the human one the humane one, unlike the kings of the earth. Last paragraph. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she stared at him and said, you also were with Jesus, the man from Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I don't know or understand what you're talking about. And he went out into the forecourt. Then the cock crowed. And the servant girl, on seeing him, began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. Then after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you're one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to curse and swore an oath. I don't know this man you're talking about. At that moment, the cock crowed for a second time. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before the cock crows twice... You'll deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Um, Just briefly here, um, notice that once again, Mark has given us a story within a story. In these last few verses, he begins by telling us about Peter being outside warming himself by the fire. And then Mark tells us about Jesus with the council, the elders, the high priest and so on. And then Mark returns to Peter and reports the uh, the report of Peter's denial of Christ. So, again, we have a story within a story, and we're getting the feeling for what Mark is up to when he does this. He's given us these two stories to help us interpret, or encouraging us to interpret these stories together. So, when we look at it that way, what do we have? With the Peter on the outside, and the, as the book ends, and we have the Jesus story in the middle. What do we have in the Peter story? We have the denial of Jesus. We have, we have self-preservation. We have denial. What do we have in the Jesus story in the middle? When Jesus is asked directly, are you the Messiah? Jesus responds. He, he doesn't give a straight yes, but he gives his way of saying who he is. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to see the Son of Man come. You're going to see. You're going to see the Son of Man. And Jesus makes that declaration again of the humane dominion of God over the earth. He makes that confession at risk of his own life. When Peter makes the denial, he does so in order to preserve his own life. And Jesus, once again, makes the emphatic statement of the loving rule of God over his world, his kingdom, The kingdom of heaven come to earth. Jesus makes that courageous announcement with this son of man image, even at the risk of his own life. So you have a portrayal of denial for self-preservation bumped right up against in contrast with this bold statement, courageous statement, even self-sacrificing statement of the loving rule of God in the world. And so, we have Thursday leading us right up to, we're going we're gonna to begin our look at Good Friday on, on the next morning, which is where Mark um, goes next. But I just want to say, um, and even in our current context, you know, um, certainly, as I said before, um, it's important for us in our current context to, to use wisdom, do the smart thing, and all that. Um, and yet at the same time, there is a call for courage. There is a call for courage to stand and say, this God, this one true God, he's a God of loving justice. He's a God who always is, stands on the side of the weak. Stand, he's always on the side of the underdog. And so my prayer for you on, on, on both sides of that, this is me This is me encouraging you in in the kind of courageous um, confession that Jesus is not only making in terms of confession, but embodying in this entire account. Um, And also to let you know, because I think that at the same time, at least to a degree, we all identify with weakness we We're faced right now, I think, with our weakness there's we can't avoid it and so I want you to know that God's on your side. He's for you. He's always for us, no matter no matter what it's who it's who he is he can't He can't help it and so my guess is that all of us will have opportunity for both sides of this. Um, dynamic where you have the opportunity to reach out and support the weak and be the hands and feet of Jesus please take it and in that sense in which you are the one who is weak and in need where you feel like the underdog I want you to know that your heavenly father is for you no matter what if you feel like the betrayer, if you feel like the one who has denied Jesus, I want you to know, just like this story is going to play out, and you're certainly welcome to read ahead, if you like, <laughs> into Easter. Um, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. The love and forgiveness of Jesus is inexhaustible. You're already, you're already forgiven. You're already embraced. Um, This great love is that unfathomable. And so I want to pray for you um, before we sign off. Father, I pray